Buchanan, you're listening to Out From Under on Resonance Extra, a weekly exploration of eclectic and experimental music co-produced with FBI Radio in Sydney. This week we're talking to the award-winning improvisation trio The Necks, who recently concluded a tour of Australia marking three decades of them working together as a band. And over those last 30 years or so, the members have collaborated with the likes of Brian Eno, Underworld's Carl Hyde, Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth, Evan Parker, Mike Cooper, John Zorn, and a whole bunch of others. This tour is designed to promote their 18th album, which is called Vertigo, and it's described as an eventful kaleidoscopic tone poem. It's certainly an album of two halves. It's a great record, full of light and shade, contrast of tone and pace and colour, and very much a marked contrast to their live performances. I recently had a chance to catch up with pianist Chris Abrahams and drummer and percussionist Tony Buck in Sydney to chat about the record and the tour and indeed their 30th anniversary. And throughout this piece today, we're going to hear clips from both the brand new album Vertigo, as well as other elements from the next back catalogue, plus some music from Chris and Tony's solo projects. This is the next on Out From Under. Thank you. 
things that you need to know about the Necks is that they are an improvisational trio, which means that every time they step out on stage, they have no preconceived idea whatsoever as to what is about to happen. They have no discussion before they go on stage. There's no formal preparation as such. They've been together for 30 years, and they sometimes play as many as 40 shows a year. And so if every one of those shows is different... What does that mean for their recorded output? And that's one of the key themes that I wanted to explore when I spoke to Chris and Tony for the next. So I started off by asking them, how does a next record come together? It's kind of not quite, it's not like we're sort of waiting around for inspiration. I mean, there's a certain kind of annual window where we are all convene in a uh, studio possible place like Sydney and I say it's studio possible because, um, you know, for, for us to make a record requires, you know, more or less, well, at least two weeks of commitment being 14 days. We don't really get an opportunity to do that when we're touring overseas. So we always have to do it in Australia to date. It might change so far in the 30 years we've been together. And we've kind of done it more or less annually. There have been some years we haven't recorded. But mostly, you know, we, we allow time to do it. We were in the belief that it would have been at least a year since we recorded something prior. And we've probably done 40 gigs around the world at some point. And so I guess we feel confident that what we will bring to the studio will be, you know, something new for us. You know, we don't overly discuss the project before we're actually in there. I think there was a period where we would record and then let it sit there for a year and then mix it a year later, which was, I think, in a way, we thought that was really positive. We'd have time to think about it, mull over what we had on the last few records. I think we've done it, we've recorded and then taken, like, recorded maybe at the beginning of the period we were in Sydney together and then mixed it, like, a month later or a few weeks later, which also has its positives. I mean, maybe the material's a bit fresher. We don't have so much time to mull over it, but quite aware of what's on the multi-track and then in the mixing period the record sort of comes into being like gets sort of constructed or molded out of what we have recorded as sort of raw tracks
We have talked about recordings before we go into the studio. I mean, I'm slightly contradicting myself, but it's very broad, you know, and, and it would be along the lines of, you know, as broad as, you know, like, well, let's do something up-tempo or let's do something quiet or let's do something very sparse or those kind of ideas. And maybe there would be a few pointers, like we, we might have one or two conversations about it leading up. But once we're in the studio, I mean... You know, it's kind of, we basically go in and just start making it, you know. And the framework, yeah, like Chris said, it's very simple. And sometimes that's kind of informed by how we've been playing gigs in the recent past or informed by the last record was really slow and spacious. Let's make a, something that's contrasting to that. Very prominent in the initial discussions was the idea of having a consistent, stable kind of for want of a better term, drone. <laughs> Which kind of got modified as we went, you know, and um, and things branching off this sort of central spine. I mean, I don't, I don't know if the, you know, the final result of the record, it, you, you'd be able to... Perceive it, that yeah, so much. Yeah, you know, a lot of the records end up in a place that we don't expect them to, you know. I remember with, uh, with Vertigo, we got to a point after about four days of tracking where we listened back to what we'd done and the mood was uh, it wasn't one of like we're really heading in the right direction it was one of like I think we probably need to change directions a bit here it sounded like we were just doing what we do you know there wasn't anything new or you know that's, that was the vibe we got we collectively reached the, this opinion and we took steps to change that I think and um after four days, I mean, that's four out of 15 days of, you know, work. So we're only 25, just over 25% into it. And, and a record can change very much from the tracking, as I think Tony implied, to the mixing. You know, there's really kind of no way of predicting um, exactly. I mean, I know. think there's always a sense when we're recording that we set out when it's very vague and we do something and it's like, well, is this the right, is this what we had in mind? And then, well, let's try this in, in the tracking stage. Like, And it's quite a calm kind of process too. Even It's like, oh, well, that's not quite what we thought. And why don't we try this tack? And I seem to remember that being a case in all the recordings in a sense. Yeah, and it doesn't really formulate itself. Or We, we find combinations in the mixing we weren't even aware of because sometimes we do overdubs that's responding to something that somebody's done as another overdub thinking well that'll go with that and then in the mixing those two things elements aren't together for example they might not be together and it'll form a whole other sort of phase in the music that we hadn't predicted when we put the part down which is nice I mean you take that that mix with a grain of salt because it's like in a way our records could be remixed and reconfigured and in that sense recomposed into many many different records from the same amount of tape if you like even though it's not tape I think I think our options increased quite a lot when we moved from um, twenty-four track analog tape to Pro Tools, uh, which which makes you know anachronistic production much much easier. You know, we didn't really do that much sort of sampling and moving of of parts when we were using more of a time-based recording. Yeah, and if we thought a part might fit anywhere in the record on a tape-based recording, we would have to do it for an hour. So in a sense, whenever we pull up that track you know that sort of part would be there. But in order for that part to be there the whole time, we had to play it for an hour. So we'd, when someone did an overdub, we'd be sitting there for an hour going like, waiting for them to do it. And then you'd play for an hour, which is quite an interesting thing to do, mm. actually. 
But now if we have a part, like we probably do it where it's a useful set length of time, like 20 minutes or half an hour, and then we know we can, that actually can be anywhere. The chronology it can be played with a lot. That's Tony Buck there, talking about the studio processes of the Necks, who will be embarking on a North American tour later this month, with dates in Europe to follow in April 2016. You can find out more information about that tour at thenecks.com. Now, the brand new record, Vertigo, it's certainly one of my favourite Necks records, I think, of their recent output. Now, maybe because this is the first Necks record that I've listened to on vinyl. So the drama, or at least the story that unfolds across Vertical, is heightened by that enforced interlude that happens about 20 minutes in. You can't just listen to one side of the record, you've got to turn it over and listen to the full experience, but there is that sense of uh, sort of cliffhanger almost as you get up from your seat and go over and uh, turn the record over. There's a very heightened uh, sense of story, it seems, on this record, the way the record moves through its phases, through its shifts and tones, which represent a kind of narrative of sorts. So I put it to Chris, what's the story of Vertigo? There's a narrative to most of the things we do in the sense of one thing leads to another being kind of directly influenced by what's happened before it. We don't sort of wildly change directions. Like it's We kind of continue things and I guess... You know, the unfolding of a piece is, is in some ways influenced by where it's come from. And I think that's the same with our records. And I mean, the, abstra- the, the narrative is very abstract. One big thing was that we very much wanted to release vinyl with this. And so, you know, the record is kind of constructed, you know, around, I don't know, a minute 20, whenever the end of side one is, for that to be like kind of a, a musical ending as well, so that you're not turning the album over and, you know, mid climax or anything. So that was quite a big narrative thing. And I guess, you know, from the sort of very sparse ending of side one and the beginning of side two, the thing, I guess, builds in over side two. I mean, the band definitely, you know, in terms of like there's a certain feel, a feel that starts to happen sort of after about 10 minutes in side two, which is quite a dramatic sort of movement. There's quite a big tense organ chord that sort of leads into it. So, yeah, I think there are certain aspects that, yeah, very, yeah, give it a shape. Those formal things were kind of like there's a practical aspect. We want to make vinyl, but we don't want to do two pieces. We want to do one piece. Mm. So, you know, musical, structural, formal element is decided by a, a practicality. So that becomes a compositional pivot point. Mm. Chris said one thing follows another. So it's in a way finding these transitions and interesting combinations of what we've put down rather than having a grand scheme, apart from that formal thing of two pieces and one piece at the same time. It's sort of what we've stumbled upon that works and like things don't change radically so some elements there'll be one element that will stay the same through something for example so that's linking as it's sort of changing vibe there'll be a link with the previous section and it'll also bring up new aspects of that part because it's in a different context so it has different meaning in a sense or you just hear it differently which will suggest other things that we will find and so in a way it's really like we're playing the mixing desk in a kind of dub sort of manner because we spend quite a lot of time mixing, you know, like you know, sometimes a week or so, you know, with a piece like that. 
So it's sort of like reflective, using the mixing desk as an instrument, but in a really reflective way over a long period of time. It seems, it seems a very normal way to work to me. It's like, I mean, I, I can imagine most or a lot of bands would, or a lot of musicians would compose like that or work like that, I guess. Although we use what the studio has to offer, in a sense, and time to kind of create... We're aiming for a similar musical kind of exploration as we do live, but then we use the studio for what it has to offer, like we use the live combination of the instruments and the space for what it has to offer for our ends, which is whatever we wanted. Yeah, I think there's a very different approach in, you know, I mean, we could go into the studio and, you know, make a live record, like just play and record it, and, and that would be kind of similar. But I think when the way, say, a record like Vertigo or Open is made, you know, there's a, there's a lot more, a lot of difference in the in what we're trying to give to the public, I think, to a certain extent, you know. When we play live, it's always piano, bass and drums. And a large part of that is, you know, people experience this clashing resonance that happens between the instruments, between the frequencies produced by the instruments and the timbres, and, and there's a certain kind of oral hallucination that can occur that I hear as well, you know, where strange things start happening in the room and people hear voices and, you know, string sections and choirs and, and they can't, you know, at the end of the show, so often some people, you know, they say, boy, well, you know, who was doing the electronics and what were the samples you were using and then there's people seem genuinely surprised that it's just a new, you know more or less you know piano bass and drums that sort of idea i don't think really is that doable on a studio album where you know if you want to have a choir well you can use a sample of a choir i mean that that kind of you know magical experience that people get live i don't think is really reproducible in the studio there's not the same suspension of belief or you know, willingness to, to get into the transcendent quality of what I've just mentioned, you know, the instruments blurring together. I think also we, we found quite early on that the big sort of crescendo elements that can happen live, the big sort of build-ups and, um, you know, the formal structure of a live performance, we haven't really done that on record. We haven't really tried really to do that much on a record. And I guess, I mean, I don't know if it's my own myopic thing but you know the the idea of a very dynamic build-up or you know a build-up of tension and that's great to hear once but maybe it's not on a record that you would hear again and again obviously there are exceptions to the rule um 
we tend to operate if we want dynamics to build we'll add more overdubs or you know it would be a much more thought out thing but there are obviously microcosms within the music we make in the studio that are related to what we play live I mean it's still based around live performance it's still me playing the piano so there's that connection but I, I still think it's it's a different way to go and I mean we've never attempted to play a, a studio album live I mean someone once asked us I mean many years ago if we'd you know like be able to reproduce sex on stage <laughs> and you know it didn't take us very long to 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 knock that on the head because I mean we wouldn't you know it's not really something that we would do so Chris Abrahams from the next there and I should note that Chris isn't talking about fornication there Sex was, in fact, the title of the first studio album from the next, released in 1989. I thought that was an important point of clarification there. Now, thinking back on that time, back to 1989, I was really curious when I was speaking to them to know whether or not an old anecdote was actually true. And that anecdote was when they first came together that they actually had no intention whatsoever of playing live or recording any records, that they just did it from themselves. They sort of hold themselves away uh, in a studio and played for their own amusement, if you like. Now, of course, they're renowned for their live shows and have a very lengthy back catalogue, so clearly something had to give. Chris Abrahams from The Next talks about that in just a second. But first of all, from their 1989 album, this is The Next and Six.
my my feeling at the time, I don't know. I mean, I think this resonates with, um, you know, that that the not playing live. Um, I had prior to the next. I think I'd stuck to a fairly simple model of there's a performer on stage, and they broadcast what they can do. They broadcast their competency, their ability to perform, and entertain from the stage, and it's a one-way thing. Um, and the performer and the audience are kind of separate. Um, that's probably the model I kind of, you know, emotionally understood. When the next, when I started playing with the next, um, suddenly this whole new idea that I could actually listen to the music while I played it, that the music that I could be sort of an audience member um, that seemed to sort of start happening when we played you know when we because you know we decided okay let's let's not play like songs and let's not play things that have solos in them and let's not have like a, you know two people backing someone else or and let's not try and dazzle people with you know a, like a sort of jazz type solo that will sort of finish after five minutes and and then the next you know that that kind of form I'm not in any way criticising that form. It's produced great music, but I think personally I'd reached the end of my... For I needed, I wanted a break from doing that kind of thing. I got the... You know, it was kind of like, oh, I am, you know, the audience, and, wow, we're making this thing together. We're creating this group thing that... And there seems to be this concept there that we're, we're all kind of, um, you know, on the same wavelength, and, wow, this is actually really amazing. And so the need to play gigs in front of an audience to get, you know, to entertain, you know, possibly wasn't, it wasn't there. It wasn't a, we didn't form the next thinking, okay, we'll workshop this and then we'll go out on the road and then this will happen we'll go, and then we'll do this and we'll go. Like, it was basically, hey, let's, let's just play. Um, you know, I just really wanted, you know, we just really wanted to do this. And so... I don't think it was a huge sort of militant decision, we will never play in front of an audience. It was more like, you know, we're quite happy to do this amongst ourselves and that, you know, let's just see where it goes. I, that's my kind of memory. Yeah, and if you were interested in, like, taking this obligation to entertain people out of the equation, one way to do that is, like, take the people out of the equation so we have no one to entertain. And we weren't entertaining each other, we were yeah. exploring these things about, like, yeah, let's not have solos, let's see what the instruments sound like in this space close together and... And when, what happens when we dwell on these areas for a long time? And, um, yeah, let's be musicians yeah. in a way, and let's let's not be dictated to by an industry. You know, I think that was possibly yeah, like a, a model of you, this has to exist for a reason outside of the music itself. And as you will, let's just play this music itself. Yeah, I, I mean, I hope it doesn't come across. I don't mean to be arrogant, or you know, it's one of the most incredible things to play in front of an audience and to feel that energy now you know when we play you know it's certainly not like we you know we didn't want an audience it was more it just didn't it didn't seem that necessary you know it, the, it when we started the equation you know, so much. Yeah. but well, then of, of course so now it's you know amazing well also i think having played for six months or eight months whatever we did before an audience and we were quite happy doing it and we did it a lot i almost i was talking to someone about this the other day like we'd all be quite busy doing uh, different gigs and we had time off in the week and and we'd like sort of ring each other and like you have Tuesday off and then, okay and we sort of filled our week with the time off we had we played together sometimes three times two or three times a week but then we finally when it was sort of other people knew we were doing this thing because it was taking so much of our time and they were like well can we hear what you're doing it's like well yeah I don't know and then I think 
because we had done it for so long and people were asking to hear it, we weren't f- sort of foisting it on people that we kind of went, okay, well, maybe you won't be interested in it, but okay, we'll do it. And, and it's like, so we're not going to do it with the pressure of like, well, maybe this isn't interesting, let's make it interesting. It's like, well, you asked for it and this is what we've been doing. So it was in a way it was like, so I don't know, is it interesting? And then <laughs> people responded to it. We, you know, we, I don't think we minded one way or the other if people were going to respond because we were going to do it anyway. And then, like the music, one thing led to another and we find ourselves 30 years later still doing it. It's amazing to us that all the people have followed, seem to follow the band and people get it and people respond to it. In a way, they respond to it like we do and it's like, wow, that's amazing and it's fantastic. I'm Stuart Buchanan, and you're listening to Out From Under on Resonance Extra, talking to the Necks on the occasion of their current 30th anniversary tour and their recent album, Vertigo. If you ask someone who's involved in improvisational music or even some other kind of durational performance work, such as performance art, if you ask them how or if they document that live event, the continuum of answers really stretches from those that are very, very adamant that they record everything to those that never document anything. It only happened once and it should really stand alone. Now the next have been performing roughly about 40 shows a year over the last 30 years. So where do the next stand on this issue of documentation? We've probably got somewhere around, you know, over 500 live recordings. It's kind of rare for us to go that we should really release that after the concert. So 
and I think we've we've kind of maybe got too many. I mean, I don't mean too many in a pejorative sense, but we, we probably need to hire a librarian or someone to go to go through them. Like it's too much sort of information. But we keep recording, and it's been a while since we've released a live album, but we're hoping to soon. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes it's also it's a practical thing. Like we'll listen to live recordings, and then it's like, can we make balances that will be good for a recording? And that thing of a great gig doesn't always translate into the recording and there's spill on tracks and you can't really get a balance that works and but but it was a great gig other ones it's like well this is this had the recordings pristine and the piece was was really good or yeah there's a great recording but actually we feel like in retrospect you know maybe there's a halfway mark the piece sort of seems to lose a bit of energy or, or gains too much energy or whatever it doesn't translate into the recording we're not overly hungry to document everything from that from the perspective of like documented but then at the same time it's nice to have a live recording because it does give a little bit of insight into another side of the group i mean when we when we first like the first live recording we released piano bass drums was very much in the model of you know okay we'll hire someone we'll pay them you know for us a lot of money and we better get something at the end of the night kind of vibe um but nowadays you know it's so easy to to make a, a good quality live recording you know you may as well just keep recording and see you know, if there's if there's one, you know.
that sort of unconscious telepathy, for want of a better word, that may exist between players that you know, consistently improvise together. Are you in a place where you can still be surprised with one another in terms of where things go, or are you are you sort of so in lockstep that you can almost sort of preempt what someone else is going? I mean, I feel both in a way. I mean, a large part of the next, you know, is that we've been doing it for thirty years, and then, you know, prior to the form of the formation of the group, we'd all played together in different in other ones, you know, things. So, I mean, I've been playing music with Tony now for, you know, almost 40 years, you know. and, and Two-thirds of our lives. Yeah. That's an incredible period of relating, you know, on a musical level with someone someone else. You know, it's a very deep... But I also can get surprised. I mean, I... But, I mean, getting back to that, that sort of, you know, former point, I mean, I think that's a really... Um, the longevity and the, the length of time we've played together, I think that's you know, kind of a very important structural element in the music we play is the confidence we have in each other and the the way we uh, communicate, if even if that's the term, that's it's it's a non verbal thing. We just we get up on stage and we we play and that's kind of changed a bit. It's like there are sort of maybe more options available to us now than when we first started. The actual, you know, concept has widened but there's there's still everything we did when we first started we could still do on stage it's not it's not like we've jettisoned anything we've just sort of built onto it um and i think there's you know maybe a a conception that uh it's about i'm not going to say you know free jamming or anything like a i mean it is on one level that but it's also about spending 40 years playing music with another human being and what that means in terms of the decisions you make on stage and the what the collective product that the three of us make you know i think that is very much a result of of that you wouldn't get that any other way uh and it can still be surprising to get to the second point (laughs) i mean it's interesting because we kind of i mean we could play we play lots of different sorts of music and there are lots of different ways to play music and we could play music together and we have done in different contexts in a very different way so we formed the band with these sort of parameters we wanted to explore and kind of inadvertently, unbeknownst to us, these parameters that we chose actually are quite open and lend themselves to to kind of being very bearing fruit continually with different inputs that we can find ways of applying, different ways of playing, applying that kind of process that we use, that we decided on, is what we were going to explore in the next. So it's sort of, I mean, it's a really awkward way of saying it, but yeah, the concept we came up with at the beginning, unbeknownst to us, really bears fruit and we can bring these other things to it so we can expand like we said the vocabulary from which we can draw on to apply this process and it can be surprising and over the years we know we keep doing different things we come back together for like a month of touring or recording or whatever and in that in the meantime we've all been doing different things and we might bring those things to the group without diluting the initial concept but it really expands the palette we have to draw on and it's exciting that's Tony Buck from The Next there on Out From Under on Resonance Extra, talking about the various side projects that the band members get involved with. Although in some respects it seems like a bit of a disservice to sort of call them 
side projects because they are projects that very much stand uh, on their own merit. And so let's delve into that in a little bit more detail. In a moment, we're going to hear from Tony about some of his side projects, such as Circadia or Transmit and another band called Peril. But first of all, let's hear what Chris has to say about his recent solo work and in particular his next album, Fluid to the Influence, which is released on the Australian label Room 40 in April 2016. Here's a preview, first of all. This is the track called As Tranquil as an Apple. Thank you. 
it kind of follows the trajectory of the other releases I've done for Room 40. I, you know, kind of just record a lot of stuff, um, be that, you know, performance or, you know, field recordings or um, different instruments. You know, on this album there's church organ, lots of Moog synthesizer, Waldorf synthesizer, like as I said, you know, live field recordings and samples and... Um, and I just kind of amass these things over a period of time, and then I, you know, kind of put them together in a, in a you know, I don't want to say collagist sort of way, but um, I mean because I think there's, I mean a lot of the pieces are, you know, have a musical backbone to them. That's not being, it's not they're not cut up in any way, but they're very much a combination of, of dispersed elements that I bring together to create pieces. And I mean the album is called Fluid to the Influence. The latest thing would be a thing called Circadia, which is a group with Joe Williamson and Kim Meir and David Stuffenhouse, two acoustic guitars, bass and drums. And which is a sort of exploring acoustic spaces of these guitars, resonances and stuff, and a kind of a fluid textural sort of interaction with the instruments. And transmitters a thing that I guess is my interest in sort of rock music and the sort of energy of a, a project like like Peril, a continuation of that, which was a noise rock based collage sort of esque genre, genre jumping sort of band. But I guess this is the transmitter would be a the energy of that and dealing with sort of the things that make rock music rock music, like the timbrely and maybe the idea of riffs, and but then maybe applying that energy of that approach to maybe the durational thing like the next use or in bands like Swans or sort of a minimal kind of thing. And I think the latest recording, I probably expanded the concept to be a bit more textural using kind of textures that aren't, that are outside of the sort of tropes of rock, but then would set in the, the setting of, yeah, the sort of the almost cliches of rock music and the idea of, like, the, the tonality of sort of riffs and even drawing on specific sort of band sounds and kind of, kind of like the idea of being ironic but not in a humorous way. If irony always has to be humorous, I don't, which I don't think so. It's sort of like just playing with those things. So, and it's a way of kind of exploring guitar playing for my part and being on the outside of directing a band and not behind from the drummer perspective from being another side of it, which is an interesting kind of perspective. From a performing perspective, there's a real shift where the way you can direct energy from a drum kit is very specific, and from the perspective of a more timbral or tone-oriented instrument like a guitar, it's, it's kind of different. You have a different overview, and if I was directing a, the sort of energy of the band in a gig, it's... Yeah, it's you could finding different ways of doing it rather than just with the energy and sort of time-based element of the drums, although that's there. But it's a, I don't know, it's it's an interesting one. I don't, I don't quite know how to describe it, but it's very different. Maybe with the next and anything I play, having that experience, and actually when you're behind a drum kit, you can feel quite like you're sort of strapped into a machine that you're playing. And there are some, maybe it's like this with any instrument, there's, you can either be very much inside that instrumental gestural thing or you can kind of be above it and like be 
playing move, playing it like from above a bit like you're in one way the instrument really dictates a lot of how you're responding and in the other way when you're a bit above it outside it you can it's it's less emotional and it's more controlled and and I think playing guitar more in a live setting and like letting you play a, a gesture and you let it ring out and then the next time you play another gesture is a, a time later and it's like there's a whole lot of different sense of space and kind of just playing and seeing what happens and I think I've, I've been influenced by that in my playing drums like I can play something like a lot less than I would consider it for its sound or its placement within the whole musical context as contributing something rather than creating a bed for which other things are put on which is very much the role of a drummer in a traditional sense you created this constant that takes care of sort of momentum and, and rhythm and then other things are placed ob above that you know and then now I, I think more and more I will place things in the context of what I'm listening to above them, above that, rather than have feeling a responsibility to create a carpet of whatever. So that's one thing that I've noticed.
That's Circadia featuring Tony Buck from the Next from their upcoming album Advances and Delays on Norwegian label Sofa. That brings us to the end of this episode of Out From Under and to our conversation with the Next. You can find out more information about what the Next are up to at thenext.com. More information about Vertigo, the new record, and their upcoming tour dates of North America and Europe. Thanks very much to Tony Buck and Chris Abrahams from the Next, to Claire McGregor and Ben Marshall, and to Peter Lansley at Resonance Extra and Caroline Gates and Beth Dalgleish at FBI Radio in Sydney. For more info on the programme, find us on Facebook, Tumblr and Instagram as Out From Under Radio. And you can also drop us a line on email at outfromunderradio at gmail.com. I'm Stuart Buchanan. Thanks for joining me on Out From Under.